Hello and welcome to this special edition of The Bill Podcast, where my special guest is the BAFTA award-winning director, Nigel Douglas. We recorded this interview back in February 2020, literally within weeks of the country going into a national lockdown. So it's quite poignant when Nigel explains in the theatre space how hard it is to get a production on stage these days. We can now appreciate just how crushing a time this will have been, not just for this company of cast and creatives, but for dozens of companies at this time who were affected by the COVID outbreak and the lockdown. It's a huge testament to all of them that the still room is now going to be performed at the Park Theatre in June 2022. But it's just worth bearing in mind that when we recorded this, we had no idea any of that was about to unfold. As well as discussing his work on the play and giving a fascinating insight into the director's role on a theatre production, we also talk about his work as a director on The Bill and he shares his thoughts and the challenges of taking The Bill to the nine o'clock slot in its final year of production. It's been a real treat to listen back to this interview and I'm just so excited for Nigel, for Sally, for Chris and the rest of the cast and crew of The Still Room which will finally, after over two years of patience and perseverance, be making its world premiere at the Park Theatre in London on June the 1st. You can book your tickets now at parktheatre.co.uk. Right, it's time to meet a visionary from behind the scenes of the bill. So sit back, relax and enjoy this interview with the wonderful Nigel Douglas. Let's start by talking about The Still Room, this extraordinary play from the mind of Sally Rogers. How did you first discover it? Tell us all about The Still Room. Okay, well, The Still Room began life, I suppose, sort of when Sally Rogers and I were working together on the bill. We had quite a good working relationship and got to know each other reasonably well. It was a very sort of friendly atmosphere, the bill. And I knew that she was starting to write and we talked about writing a little bit and she'd sent me some early plays which I'd sort of read and I could see that she had a great talent for it. And then we stayed in touch and we in fact worked together again then on a children's drama called The Dumping Ground and that re-energised the idea of her making this transformation from actor to writer. And then I started looking for a play, having just done a play at the Park Theatre, David Hare play called Vertical Lab. And originally I was looking for a sort of four-hander. I had a, an actor family in mind to play for all four of them, mum and dad and the two daughters, to play in a, in a particular production. And Sally being sort of an encyclopedia of theatre, really, I sort of said, is there anything you could think of? And that really evolved into then me having a look at this play, which centres around sort of working-class young women uh, in the 1980s. Uh, so it was a sort of first draft, an early draft of this play. And straight away I could see that, you know, Sally's got this an enormous gift for finding working class voices, particularly women's voices, finding the originality of that. But but the sort of the, the comic and the tragic within that, which is a, a rare thing. I have a particular interest in trying to develop working class voices on screen and theatre anyway. It's, it's something that we've slightly lost sight of in, in across film and television and theatre. So 
we started working together and I started looking at Sally's play and developing Sally's play and throwing loads and loads of notes at her and loads of changes and she started developing the idea and we started to breathe more sort of narrative structure into the play while still very much maintaining this amazing voice that Sally has. And that really got us to a point where we, I think we both felt this was a play we wanted to do. I approached the park and have a very good relationship with the artistic director here, Jez Bond, and we discussed putting it on in uh, Park 90, which is the studio space at the park. One of the main issues is simply a practical one of theatre space in London. The theatres book up quite a long time in advance. They are able to be quite selective in the plays they choose. Obviously, all theatres are businesses, so they want to be sure that the plays they agree to will have box office appeal, that they'll be able to fill the tickets and that uh, everyone doesn't lose lots of money. So, But the arts are a risk. And the great thing about this theatre, it has a very uh, open policy in terms of taking risk with new productions, particularly in this smaller space in Park 90. So I think we went through a series of processes. We, we wrote and rewrote and rewrote, and then we did a reading of the play for Jez, the artistic director here. That seemed to work quite well, and Jez liked it and gave it the go-ahead. But then obviously mounting the play brings then a whole new set of issues, so you have to finance it, which is by itself you know, obviously quite an expensive process. Pull a cast together, the marketing and publicity together, design, lighting, sound. So all that has to be pulled together. So it is quite a big undertaking. And an interesting one for me, I've, I've produced quite a lot of film and television. I've produced theatre some years back, but this is the first theatre project that I've produced almost independently. So yeah, it's been a challenge, but it's been great fun. And even nicer when you can work with old friends, not just Sally in this case, but Chris as well. So how, how did that happen? Well, actually, most of the cast have come together over either Sally's or mine's sort of working experience with people that we respect and, and value. So as we were developing, uh, in this instance, the character of Kevin that Chris Simmons plays, the more we developed that, the more we kept going back and saying, well, this is Chris, isn't it? We should get, try and get Chris to do this. He and Sally were good mates. He read the script. He really liked the script and the part, so that was fantastic. Jane Slavin, who plays Benice in the play, is an actress that I first worked with on Clocking Off in 2000 with David Morrissey, played David Morrissey's wife, who is a Manchester Salford girl and have worked with her two or three times since and, and absolutely adore her and has got this amazing talent. She seemed right for that part. I had been doing a theatre workshops with actors and I'd been doing this workshop with a group called Acting Up in Waterloo and the very first time I went to work with the actors there they all did a piece for me and I sort of walked around the room as they delivered their piece and then this one actress, Kate James, did this sort of Tennessee Williams sort of Deep South piece and just blew me away and I knew from that moment I wanted her and it's that amazing thing when it all comes together isn't it so so Kate uh, as the main part Janice the lead in, in the play was actually cast almost from the very beginning and has stayed with us bless her all the way through so that came about through there Sally knew of Zoe that's playing Diane and she also knew of Jack that's playing Dean so together it was people that we had either worked with or that we knew of or the people that 
people had talked about, people we sort of trusted their opinion. So it's a very already quite knit company. We've done a couple of read-throughs now. Um, everyone's talking to each other and it feels about as good as it can be at this, this stage, I think. Mm. And let's talk about the process of from the early days. I mean, what's going to be your your role before it hits the stage talk us through your perspective and and how you're going to craft this and bring it to life and is there a formula or do you literally sometimes go into a rehearsal and just an ideal spark the light bulb will come on what's your process to actually getting this from the page to the stage yeah, that's a really good question, and I think it's probably all those things. I am uh, something of a control freak, like most directors, and quite anal as well, like a lot of directors. So when I'm directing a film or a TV show, I plot everything down to the last degree, so I work out every single shot, every sound effect. And in that, every expectation of what a performance needs to be. So I have a similar process with theatre, of course, the terrifying thing in theatre is you have to let the baby grow up and you have to let it leave home, whereas in film you can control it all day long and in through the edit and so on and so forth. In theatre on that first night, it has to be ready and you just have to give it up. And that, I find that really hard. <laughs> but the process of rehearsals for me are... I like to start with the... by having worked out exactly physically what I want the actors to be doing and an expectation of where the performance lies and how we tell the story. But within that, then, it's really allowing the actors to explore what the possibilities are and almost always good actors, and we have a fantastic cast of good actors, will offer much more than you could possibly imagine and and will be much better than, than my brain says they can be. So that sort of develops their way. And to a certain extent, theatre rehearsals are a question of just shaping and, and pushing and encouraging that then to, to the sort of end degree, really. So how much harder is it when you've got exactly the same responsibility, but you're doing episodic television made extremely fast nowadays? There are no rehearsals as such. I can only imagine the amount of pressure on a director's shoulders on a TV set or a film now how does it differ from having this rehearsal process for you to still command the same responsibility but a huge crew like hundreds of people on a set it is different from theater i think i mean television has steadily got faster and faster in in the way it shoots and and the amount of volume that we try and achieve all the time i think partly it's doable because professional actors working on those shows become incredibly slick at knowing their lines knowing what the point of the scene is uh, and the crews that you work with are incredibly skilled in arriving at quite complex shots particularly on shows like the bill where you know we shoot shots that might be seven eight ten minutes long that might go across two or three floors I've shot shots that start in a police van in the car park and come out and run through the parking area and into the thing through the interview stairs up the stairs into you know so these really complicated shots that take a lot of planning you know they I can spend two or three days working out one of those shots down to its exact perfection but you can only do that if everybody else around you is is good enough to do it I was very lucky when I was learning to direct. I had a mentor called Herbie Wise, who was a famous director sort of in the sort of 80s, 70s and 80s. And he always taught me to plan everything and to have the final film in your head 
and then pull it apart to the bits that you need to arrive at the final, rather than try and make it up as you go along. S some directors can do that. They can arrive and see it when, when they're there. I've never really been able to do that. So my approach is I draw it all, I work it all out, and then the night before each day of filming, I learn it like an actor learns their lines. So it appears I am being phenomenally creative the next day, <laughs> but actually I've, I've, I know exactly every single shot that day. Mostly I know every line that the actor has. By, by midway through a shoot, if an actor says a line, I know what scene it's from and I know what the lines around it are. You become very close to it as a director. You sort of live and breathe it for the period of that shoot. So. Because what I love about your directing, I've watched quite a, you know, you directed Don Mabel over like a 15 year span. The pacing of your episodes, you're not afraid to hold a wide shot and just have a moment of, mm. of quiet. Mm. There's a phenomenal episode, I think it was your last called Unforgiven, where Pippa Hayward and Tony Morsley mm. have this very intense scene. Mm. And you just hold it. Mm that shot of these two people who are avoiding eye contact at any cost, which was class, and they both give phenomenal performances. But I love the fact you weren't afraid in this glossy, rejuvenated bill of mm. just to have a wide moment of, of three actors not saying anything, you know. Mm. But it seems to me that there's always this connection on your episodes between the audience paying attention mm. Do you think it's a tendency that some people... Simon Pegg said it at Q&A recently. He said, I, I like programmes that don't think I'm stupid, you know. Every script, to a certain extent, tells you how it wants to be, how it wants to be shot. And, uh, and certainly when the bill moved from its 8 o'clock slot to its 9 o'clock slot, one of the things I was quite interested in is allowing us to be more filmic, more cinematic in how we told stories. So to reflect more like Wire in the Blood, Awaking the Dead, in terms of how we created a shot and allow the actors to move within a shot and move away a bit from the the sort of fast, furious nature of the eight o'clock handheld, slightly more frenzied style that we had. The style really sort of developed. I, I got slightly trapped in my work as a director early on. In the mid-90s, I, I directed a show called This Life, which won loads of awards and became known as the iconic show of the sort of 90s which was very edgy and very fast, camera moving, and, uh, and I think, you know, it was a Marmite show for lots of people. But out of that, I developed much more this handheld sort of whip pan ideal, which was really happening in American television at that time, sort of Hill Street and suicide and so on and so forth. And um, the idea being is that what you can do on television is, is put the viewer into the world rather than sit and observe it. I think, you know, in film, we create a world which we sit out of in the whole and we observe it as a sort of third party position. In television, because you're on a smaller screen and you shoot closer to the actors a lot of the time, you can allow the camera just to be another character in the scene. So that was really where all that came from. But yes, once we started telling more complex stories at nine o'clock that I think afforded for me as a director, the opportunity to be more cinematic, so to stay wider and stiller and allow these great actors to, to do their thing, really. Rewatching these episodes, I just wish it had been given more of a chance to continue to show what you guys could do. You had fantastic actors, solid storylines. These episodes hold up 
What was the feeling for everyone working on it? It was a big risk. How, how was the approach at the time to rejuvenate the bill and how could it have been done differently, do you mm. think? I think... Uh we were slightly trapped at the time in that we had been making this eight o'clock procedural show for a long time. And there was a golden rule that was absolutely unbreakable, was that you could only ever see the baddies or what was going on from the point of the police. And that was really what defined it as a show. When that developed into hour-long shows, that became harder to work with and we had to sort of stretch stories out or find more complex longer stories that would last over the hour but it still worked as an ensemble cast with a mix of detective and uniform and so on and so forth I think what we weren't if I'm honest particularly well geared to when we moved to nine o'clock was realizing that most nine o'clock shows really are closer to a film, that they have a protagonist who is a hero copper whose life you follow. So whether that's Robson Green in Warren's Blood or Amanda as Burton as it was in Silent Witness or uh, Trevor even Waking the Dead, it's really one person with two or three sidekicks and each week you, you, you know, follow the root of that. And it's a well-trodden path from Quincy to Columbo and, you know, and, and Kojak and all the way through TV history. What we had is a cast of 20-odd, mixed bunch of different things and different combinations. So the brutal thing probably would have been to reduce that down to two or three and just follow their stories. We also were a bit slow to realise we had to change the nature of the scripts, that we could no longer do straight procedural stuff. We had to now mix in more mystery, more thriller, more complex ideas and maybe we had to tee up our baddies in a different way so you know it's very difficult when you have a production there's you know several hundred people work on the bill there's we were having you know we were generating two three hours of tv every week in terms of scripts and development and shooting and editing and so on and so forth and I think it just we weren't geared quickly enough to make that transition but I do think a few weeks in we were getting the hang of it and and we were getting better and better and I think another six months would have really seen us turn the corner and sort of champion that that scheduling decision but tv's a brutal place so mm. if you don't hit it straight away then the game's up tv production as everyone can imagine I'm sure is a fairly neurotic anxious anxiety driven environment and the bill wasn't really it knew what it was and it knew what it was trying to achieve and everyone had a a real belief in trying to make the best show possible. Um, so it was a great place to work. And from what Sally and Chris were saying, you were very accommodating as a director. You, you let them have their playtime, as it were, whilst also keeping, keeping them on the straight and narrow. So that must presumably be a, a difficult balance, you know, if, if you've got, you know, time is money in telly, isn't it? Mm. Um, but it sounds like it was bloody good fun making the bill as well. <laughs> it was good fun. I mean, it's quite hard work. I think you have to realise as a director, you sort of have to jump on the bus, hold on and then jump off the bus. It's not your film. You are merely one of, you know, the, the production line of directors coming through. So I think that's a factor. Uh, I also completely understood, you know, I go in for four weeks and shoot my two films, but those actors are in there from five o'clock every single day doing their thing, you know, and learning their lines the night before and so on and so forth. So the demands are huge. So I... I sort of understand when you get certain combinations of them, you know, that 
that they have to let off steam and it has to be a bit of a lark too. Yeah, there are times where you just want to smack their legs, but mostly something else is coming out of it. And certainly for the main cast that I worked with in the bulk of my time at the Bill, the sort of Sally's and Chris's and Alex Walkinshaw's and uh, Sam Callis and all that gang, it was nothing but a pleasure really working with them. You know, and, and, and as a whole, fairly easy to direct. Mm. What other projects you'd still love to get off the ground? What, what's the dream project? Yeah, well, as I sort of mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm very keen on uh, trying to get some authentic sort of working class voices, really. There's a sort of paradox, really, in, in the arts that the majority of people who produce and direct uh, across film, television and theatre are well-educated sort of middle-class people because it sort of takes that voice and that mentality to get through the system, to be given the opportunity to do it. And I think we're missing out on a lot of really interesting stories and and, uh, society perceptions. So I'd be quite keen to do something like that. Sally Rogers and I are working on a film script, so we're writing a film script between us, which sort of has echoes of the still room in it but is really about dating for middle-aged women uh the new sort of uh, app version of dating and how dating from our youth which was meeting people in pubs and clubs and being really shy and being the man that had to ask someone if they wanted to drink for fear of rejection how that has changed radically so it's a script about a woman who's having to adapt to the new world of, of relationships so I think we're obviously very keen to get that up and running. And I'd really like Sally's work to be recognised. And, you know, I'd like to do... Sally has another play, which is also very good, and I'd really like to get that on. But I'd love something televisual to come of what we're doing here in the theatre. We've been sort of blindsided by sort of politics, international and domestic, in the last few years. But I think if we look back to 1981, this play set in the week that Princess Diana was marrying Prince Charles, you know, this fairy tale princess to the prince. It was this time of great hope in that way and yet set against Margaret Thatcher's Britain with huge issues with minors, so working class really being put upon, but at the same time being offered the opportunity to buy their own council houses. So it was the beginning of the destruction of society or the dismantling of society, which has led politically perhaps to where we are now. So it's a really rich time. It's a rich time for music and fashion. So it's a perfect time to sort of root this. But I think what interested us both... So the play sort of has two themes, really. One is about women and where women have come from, from so young 17-year-old waitresses working in a sort of three-star grubby hotel in Manchester were very much put upon. Their life expectation of what they would be would be to, you know, marry a carpet fitter at 20 and have a couple of kids and get a council house. That would be the expectation from school onwards for a huge amount of young women to where we are now. So that's sort of one theme. Also, a big underlying theme is about confidence. I think, you know, what's really different is something I've really learned in my sort of 30 years in film and television and working alongside Oxbridge candidates and upper middle class people who have all the connections is is confidence that they, by the time they come into the workplace, they're confident they are going to be able to do something with their lives because that's what they've been being told all their life. Whereas for working class people... 
you're mostly told you're going to work in the factory or the shop or you know if you're really clever you might get to be a teacher or a nurse or the expectation is much lower and therefore your confidence to be able to do something bigger than that is hard so those two themes are at play having said that and that sounds a little bit heavy this is a funny play this is a comic play in the true sense of sort of black comedy really it uh it's a little bit fruity in places but the three girls that are at the centre of this play have the most fantastic, sort of quick-witted, bantery dialogue, and their perception of the world is hilarious. So um, it's definitely worth coming to see. It was a real pleasure to revisit that interview with Nigel. It's actually quite a fascinating window into all our lives, listening to something from February 2020, when... Everything changed a month later. So I'm absolutely thrilled for the cast and crew that the still room will finally be seen. And I'm sure you will join me in booking a ticket and going along and supporting the cast and crew. Nigel is also very kindly going to be joining Sally Rogers and Chris Simmons on a newly recorded The Bill podcast where we can find out how it's been for them over the last two years and what it's taken to keep the show alive and how they feel to finally share it with audiences. And if you're interested in hearing more about Nigel's time directing on The Bill and his career in general, he recorded a fantastic commentary for his first episode, The Right Thing, which is live on Patreon. Thanks so much for your support. I'll leave you now with the dulcet tones of Mr Ben Payton to read our closing credits, and I'll see you at the Park Theatre. Bye for now. Hello, this is Ben Payton and you have been listening to The Bill Podcast. Produced and presented by Oliver Crocker. Co-produced by Ben Adams, Sarah Kuiper, Alex Mockler and Simon Wolfe. Executive produced by Ben Ashmore, Daniel Christopher, Alana Dewar, Andrew Dyack, Paul Dunn, Dan Evans, George Fairbrother, Stuart Gibbon, Luke Hegarty, Edward Kellett, James Ladane, Lucy McNeil, Stuart and Jen Morris, Claire Norbury, Justin Pitt, Tom Sherrington, Angel Stannard, Patrick Stratford, Sarah Went and Michael Weil. Brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com and Misty Moon Events. Signed copies of Oliver Crocker's book, Witness Statements, are available from devonfirebooks.com.